Welcome, everyone, to the Revolution 250 podcast. Revolution 250 is a consortium of about 70 history organizations in and around Massachusetts looking at ways to commemorate the beginnings of the American Revolution. I am Bob Allison, the chair of the advisory committee and your host and a professor at Suffolk. And our guest today is Ira Stoll. And Ira Stoll is the author of Samuel Adams Alike. Thank you for joining us, Ira. My pleasure to be here. Great. So um, I can tell the audience more about your background that may come up as we're going along, but you are fairly local, Worcester Academy, Harvard, and you still live, you live in Cambridge, but you're not writing this out of a parochial interest. So my question is, is it possible to tell the story of the revolution without talking about Samuel Adams? Right. So let me just uh, back up a sec. I, I live in the city of Boston. Um, Thank I you. work in Cambridge. Okay, that's that. good. But um, um, my I, apologies. No, it's no, it's no problem. I, I won't be insulted. <laughs> um, um, the is it possible to write about the history of the revolution without Sam Adams? Uh, yes, people do it all the time. Unfortunately, I don't think they're telling the full story. And that's part of the reason why I wrote this book, because I think that to really tell the full story of the revolution, you need Samuel mm -hmm. Adams because he was an important part of it. Yeah. And so the people writing the story of the revolution without Samuel Adams, they may be focusing on the military part of it, which he really wasn't that involved mm -hmm. in. He wasn't carrying a gun or, or, or um, um, at least during the battles. Yeah. Um, but, um, but he, he was in Congress and he mm -hmm. was, he was writing articles in advance and, you know, hopefully we'll get into exactly yeah, yeah. what role he played. But, but I, I, yeah. the argument of okay. this book is that it was very important. He's very important. And he plays a role that we could easily overlook because he writes a lot of things anonymously for the press. He mentioned that he's writing you know, hundreds of these newspaper essays. He's editing the Boston Gazette. And that's really a critical role that we historians might overlook. So for about 20 years, he really is a practicing journalist, as we would know it. He operates a printing press and he is disseminating his view of the world. It's a fascinating story you tell. Right. And um, I had the, the experience and I think it's a modern experience of, of bloggers, um, maybe anonymous bloggers uh, who have a small media operation, you know, do you try to make yourself look bigger than you are by writing different pieces under different pen yeah, names? Yeah. Yeah, um, Dix and um, all, all, all. so how do you track down his various pseudonyms? Right. Well, so that's work that was done before before I got there, and and there were there, um, there what there is a, a multi volume. I think it's four volumes mm -hmm. that I have it. It's sitting on my desk yeah. at home. If we were doing this from 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 home rather than my my office. Um, the collected writings of Samuel mm -hmm. Adams and um, and and the and somebody did that and Fortunately. you know there there are some additional things yeah. that 
were that have been discovered afterwards, but they're few and far between. And and um, in a way that kind of teed it up very nicely. It it, it you know it would have been great to find a discovery in some attic somewhere yeah. of hidden uh, letters of Samuel Adams, but um, as as I write in the book this was a wartime situation and um, secrecy was at a premium. And uh, so a lot of times Samuel Adams was in the winter burning copies of his letters in the fire or in the summer, cutting them up into small pieces. Um, You know, it's the letters are more permanent and newspaper writings are more permanent than, than Mm -hmm. obviously email would be or, or Snapchat. Uh, But But, uh, but the, the, um, source material, at least the Samuel Adams source material is pretty well identified. Yeah. yeah. One thing that is really different in your book from other biographies of Samuel Adams is you really do a lot with his religiosity. That is his, he's a devout congregationalist and you can see that infusing his writings, his speeches, and really his attitude. And I wonder how you came to that as a theme for the book, aside from the fact that it's obvious. Yeah, well, I'm glad you agree that it's obvious. Um, you know, I think there's a there's a tendency in, in history to, um, to react. There's a pendulum, right, mm-hmm. in, in historiography to... to kind of you make your name as a historian by correcting the previous uh trend in historiography um and so i I think there's a historiographic story of this where um i came on the scene uh, as a student in a in a age where um like the ACLU had helped push a lot of religious education mm-hmm. out of uh, out of American public schools or talk of religion. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you know, and I look, I, um, I'm Jewish. I, I like I appreciate the ACLU getting mandatory mm-hmm. Christian prayer out of out of public schools, um, but I also think it's hard to tell the full story of the American Revolution without. Um, discussing the role that religion played. Mm-hmm. And I think it varies in different parts of the revolution. Like I learned in school that, uh, that a lot of the founders were deists. They believed in mm-hmm. an abstract uh, clockmaker mm-hmm. God. And that's true about some, um, some leading figures in the American revolution, but it wasn't true about Samuel Adams. And um, that's the story that I tried to tell to, to, um, adjust the, mm-hmm. the, what I saw as the story that I learned in, in high school. Um, yeah. and, and the truth is like, there's a personal aspect of it too. I mentioned I'm Jewish and like, and, and that's an important part of my identity. And so I can kind of, I felt like a little bit like I could relate to, um, Samuel Adams going to church, uh, and, and the idea that, um, 
I don't know, the story of the, of the Bible and, and the exodus from slavery um, was like a real motivating story for him it, mm-hmm. um, that was in a genuine way. Um, and so uh, sometimes if, if somebody's coming at it from a more secular, uh, modern perspective, they may have a hard time identifying with that, but I'm glad you agree that it that uh, that it's hard to miss. And because I I do think for Samuel Adams, whose father-in-law was a was a minister, mm-hmm. and who, um, you know, everybody who wrote about him like stressed this religious aspect. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just it's just there all throughout the sources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, it's there. It is, yeah. And there's that critical moment at the First Continental Congress when they decide to begin with a prayer and everyone kind of looks to these New Englanders. How will they react to that? And Samuel Adams makes the motion to have one of the clergy of Philadelphia. That is, we're not going to insist on a Congregationalist because we know there are lots of different uh, faiths here or people of lots of different beliefs here. So that's really a critical moment in trying to forge a nation out of these different, really disparate places. Um, that's, a, that's a bigger story, which I don't know that we need to talk about right now, but there's plenty more to talk about with Samuel Adams. We're talking with Iris Stoll, who is the author of Samuel Adams, A Life. And I think one thing we know about Samuel Adams, which might not necessarily be true, but you know, Samuel Adams, the brewer, the, the guy on the beer, Beer cans, beer bottles. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Side well, of this? The, yeah, the story that I like to tell about this is when I was promoting this book, I did one event at the New York Historical Society and one event at the Boston Public Library. And the New York Historical Society, there was a fee to attend. It was like 10 or $25 a ticket. And it got a huge crowd, like two or 300 people. And the Boston Public Library event was free. And it was a small enough crowd that was actually kind of embarrassing. C-SPAN Book TV was there and they said, we don't usually do this, but we're gonna ask you to crowd in into the front row seats so that it looks a little more crowded for Ira. Um, and I, I was thinking to myself, well, what is this? Like Samuel Adams of Boston? Aren't people interested in a local story of the American Revolution? Um, and it turned out the, New York Historical Society event um, had a partnership with the Samuel Adams Beer Company. So there was beer after the event. And the Boston Public Library, of course, you know, they're not serving alcohol in the Boston Public Library, at least for a a book talk. So so, uh, I learned from that 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 beer is a powerful, powerful thing in in getting out crowds for author events. And, and, you know, I think in part because of the of the beer company, um, the the brewer aspect of Samuel Adams has been um, maybe a little bit overemphasized mm-hmm. in the popular imagination. I, I, I get into it a little bit. He was a maltster, um, mm-hmm. um, but but it, there is a certain truth to the idea that. Um, People were gathering in Boston in coffee houses and in taverns and discussing the events of the day. Mm-hmm. And and 
um, and in a kind of civic engaged way that um, that helped build the the popular support for the revolutionary mm -hmm. cause just as just as newspaper articles and mm -hmm. and letters for to committees of correspondence um, and the underlying substance and the sermons from the ministers mm -hmm. all those things work together uh, the the popular events like the liberty right. tree and, and marches like that so all those things are kind of working together to to build popular support for mm -hmm. the for the revolutionary cause yeah and he really is a master organizer in a way that I think is worth studying. But then the unfortunate thing is he burned most of his papers and where he's talking about how he does this. You know, you have these revolution happening on different levels and he seems to be the one pulling a lot of this together or pulling the strings. And is that it? Yeah, I mean, pulling the strings... Um, Pulling the strings is, is, is probably like slightly a little more manipulative to 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 than 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 I might. Um, I didn't want to suggest he ever did a wrong thing. Yeah. <laughs> I'm a big defender of Samuel Adams, but 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 the but the you know there's a there's a camp of historians, and certainly the British would portray it mm -hmm. this way who felt that um, <clears throat> Samuel Adams was stoking up the Boston oh, yeah. mob and, and in, in a kind of sinister way. And, um, you know, I, I'm a proud American and, you know, mm -hmm. I think the revolutionaries were, were, were uh, correct to, mm -hmm. to want um to want to govern their right. own affairs um, and not have not be ruled by by Britain, where mm -hmm. they didn't have a vote, mm -hmm. uh, especially on matters like taxes, um, like taxation yeah. without representation. So, um, you know, there's a limit to how much even a talented organizer can do to organize a population right. into a cause that. Uh, that they don't have some underlying sympathy with on the, on the merits. Um, right. So this concept of like Samuel Adams as a propagandist or, mm -hmm. or, uh, um, you know, I, I think, I, I think he was a, he was an excellent communicator and, mm -hmm. and, and, and a worker of the political process. Um, but I think he, what, Part of what made him excellent is his ability to um, to argue the merits of the case in a way that um, that resonated with the the colonists' underlying uh, ideology right. of, yeah. of liberty and mm -hmm. and and freedom. Right, right. He's not making the best of a bad case. He's making the best of a good case. I think and. Um, we're talking with Iris Stoll, author of Samuel Adams, A Life. And, you know, I, I was thinking as you were talking about whether you know, Peter Oliver talks about Adams and his history of the revolution. Peter Oliver, the loyalist, you know, brother-in-law of Thomas Hutchinson, essentially says Adams did all of this because he hated Thomas Hutchinson. 
Um, John Adams later said that if the American Revolution was a blessing and not a curse, history will remember Samuel Adams. And Samuel Adams seems one of the few historical characters whom John Adams doesn't foam with jealousy when he hears about. He sees Samuel Adams playing this vital role, which even in his lifetime was being undervalued and underappreciated, which is interesting to see. And when John Adams goes to Paris, people ask if he is the famous Adams. And he corrects them, no, you mean my cousin. And so why is it that Samuel Adams then does, you know, not, he, he, he does seem to, um, he retreats from Congress. As you make the point, he does spend as many more years in Congress than most people would want to. But then, of course, he spends the rest of his career in Massachusetts as a member of the state, president of the state Senate and governor, which are very significant things here in the Commonwealth. But why doesn't he? Why? why I, mean, I guess the question is, why isn't he as well known as we think he should be? Yeah. So I get into this in the conclusion of my book. Um, and I offer a couple of suggestions. One is that, um, you know, as the federal role increased, that Samuel Adams, who um, after the revolution was in a state role and before the revolution um, was in a city of Boston or town of Boston role, um, uh, you know, state and local just became less prominent. So, mm -hmm. so, and, and so, so I think that is part of the reason. I think that um, maybe because he was so religious that the, the secular trend uh, um, kind of worked, worked against him. And I think that, um, I think that uh, he was uh, he was like eclipsed a little bit by 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 um, by the other Adams who, yeah. who 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 was you know president of the United States, which yeah. Samuel Adams never never was, yeah. um, you know. So so I think you know even in even in his day in Massachusetts. Um, Massachusetts was changing. And so mm -hmm. um, congregationalism was fading in favor of Unitarian Universalism and Catholicism. And um, the, the, like science and industry were coming up. And, mm -hmm. and, and so um, like Samuel Adams was seen a little bit by the, these new uh, Federalists as a kind of person of the past. Um, yeah. Yeah, he opposed the, at first he opposes ratifying the Constitution. He comes to support it somewhat reluctantly with a promise of amendments, which is a very important story. And then he loses in a race for Congress to Fisher Ames, I think. Um, and, and also I think the thing too, he is older. You know, he's about, uh, actually I was really pleased to see on one of the, um, a coaster for, Samuel Adams Beer in 1773, a fiery young revolutionary. I'm thinking, well, in 1773, he's 51 years old, which you know, when which could be young, um, but he is. He, he he's not a young man. Uh, with he's 10 years older than Washington, and 
a dozen years older than his cousin. And so I think we have to give him credit for what he does when he is in his prime. Right. And life expectancy then was was less and healthcare was worse. So, you know, being in your 50s in the 1770s is not the same as being in your 50s uh, in your 50s right. now with, you know, exercise and yeah. low carb diets and high yeah. blood pressure medicine. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So we're talking with Iris Stoll, author of Samuel Adams, A Life. And so what can you tell us about the Boston that Samuel Adams really dominates in the 1750s, 60s, 70s, when he's the leader of the town meeting? And uh, he's played such a critical, he's head of the, this caucus club that his father had started, and he's writing this newspaper. And why does the revolution happen here, I think, in, in Boston? What's special about Boston? Yeah, well, I mean, I really encourage people people to um, not just read books like mine, but to get out and um, walk the streets, go on some of those house tours, uh, go visit the Museum of Fine Arts or the Bostonian Society or the, the Old South Church. Uh, um, and, you know, the, the physical, um, the physical stuff is still there. Um, I try to tell some of that story in my book and you like go to the um, go to the museum of fine arts in the mm -hmm. room where there, that picture, the portrait of Samuel mm -hmm. Adams is. And um, I think in the same room, at least uh, when I did the research for this book, there's a portrait of, I think it's Nicholas Boylston yeah. um, who's, who's, um, dressed in much fancier clothing than Samuel Adams. Um, and if you look at some of the Revere silver, mm. like we have this idea that um, sometimes that it's like Thanksgiving and they're just barely surviving at, at Plymouth plantation with the, you know, with the, with the Indians and, and stuff. But um, Boston by 1760s, there, there were people doing pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. um, there was, there were ships going back and forth to, to England and, and um, gorgeous silver. And so there was, there was um, property to defend in these tax fights. And, and that's part of why uh, Britain wanted to raise the taxes. They saw mm -hmm. these colonists as, as uh, I mean, um, you know, I don't want to push the contemporary metaphors, but it's a little bit like, you know, um, people don't want to tax themselves to pay for things. They, they mm -hmm. want to tax other people. And they saw these colonists as a, as a, you know, thing, place to, to tax, uh, whether it was tea or, mm -hmm. or paper. Um, so, so there was, um, there was wealth to yeah. be, there was, there was, there was wealth and, and there was growth, um, mm -hmm. you know, so, so, um, you know, there were ups and downs, uh, depending on that, the, on, you know, pandemics or, or, mm -hmm. um, you know, economic, uh, upturns or downturns, mm -hmm. but, but in general, um, Boston was booming and the towns outside were, were also, um, you know, people would bring crops to market in, in, 
in Boston. And it wasn't like everybody had their own little farm in Boston. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, they had they had cooks and they were eating the eating the food from the surrounding countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So Boston is doing pretty well. And it's one of the things they want to preserve that as well as the fact that they always had governed themselves. I mean, the town meeting is really this potent thing. And so there is it's not just a sense that they controlled their destiny, but it's the fact. And yeah, that's the great. I love that portrait of Samuel Adams, too, because he's pointing at the Massachusetts Charter and he's holding the instructions from the town of Boston to him, their representative. So it's really making this point about where power comes from and having a written charter, a written constitution, which is really something different from the experience of England. And also why at that moment he's in this big fight with Thomas Hutchinson, the governor, because the rules are changing. And so we'll let Parliament call the shots and Samuel Adams in the portrait is saying, no, that this is how it's spelled out in the charter. And uh, his other hand is resting on the town of Boston minute book. And it's a fascinating portrait. And I think, did John Hancock commission it? Do you, do you know? Yeah, so exactly. So there's also a portrait of, of, of Hancock. And, and um, it was expensive to hire someone as famous and good as John Singleton Copley to, to paint your portrait. And it was Samuel Adams' uh, was always poor until the end of his life. I mean, mm -hmm. he wasn't dirt poor; as yeah. he was wealthy enough to go to Harvard and and stuff. But but he was never as rich as Hancock. No. And so Hancock commissioned this portrait, and it was part of this kind of frenemy relationship that he had with Hancock, where um, Samuel Adams was always kind of jealous of Hancock for his wealth. But he also needed Hancock uh, to um, to back him, and and um, and so in in matters as as personal as commissioning the the portrait, mm -hmm. and so so yes, you're right to to mention that relationship as an important one. Yeah. So can you tell us a little bit more about this Hancock Adams relationship because? It seems to us they're joined at the hip, but there was a great deal of tension, animosity between them, which may be inevitable in political alliances like this one. Right. So there's, I think there's envy, there's, there's jealousy, there's rivalry, mm -hmm. political rivalry. Um, you know, Han Hancock was elected as president of the first Continental Congress, and uh, I think that was a job that Samuel Adams would have been happy to have gotten himself. Mm -hmm. And in letters home, he rude how um, voters were impressed by Hancock's riches. And, and um, that seemed to him to run counter to uh, the proper moral virtuous mm. ap approach. And sometimes he made fun of Hancock who used to run around with all these white horses and, and um, the, the, you know, that that could, could be a hassle if you were mm -hmm. trying to get to and from Congress with all these white horses that you had to feed and put up mm -hmm. in the local, local yeah. inn. Yeah. 
Yeah, and there's a story of the morning of Lexington and Concord when Hancock is obsessed with having this beautiful roast salmon and Adams understands the importance of this day. And it's a singular moment of these two guys there when the war actually begins. Yeah, and the, and the, the, the British... Um, you know, the British were under the impression that if they could just get Samuel Adams and John Hancock and put him in jail, mm. that the whole thing would be over, um, mm. which we, ne we never got to see if they were right about that. But it, it was a close it was a close call. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Uh, you, do you think they were right? Uh, I, I think. If they had captured both Samuel Adams and John Hancock early on and and imprisoned them in Britain or killed them, um, I, yeah, I think that could have made a big difference. Mm. I think you know it's impossible to know, yeah. but but I but I think it would have set back the revolutionary cause. Mm considerably. Mm -hmm. okay. We're talking with Ira Stoll, author of Samuel Adams, A Life. Now, you're um, not by profession an historian, so I do want to ask, what drew you to writing this really terrific work of history? Well, I was a history major in college, uh, and I took a course with Professor Bernard Balin, um, who was a who's a giant of the field, um, which made a real impression on me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I grew up in Massachusetts as a kid going to old Sturbridge village and walking the freedom trail. So I was always interested in this stuff and I am a professional writer and editor. So, um, and, and there's a tradition I think of, non-academics mm. writing books about certainly biographies about yeah. figures in the american revolution like you know david mccullough is not an academic historian mm -hmm. walter isaacson isn't either and you know not that i would put myself in their league but but um you know they were certainly models for 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 this mm -hmm. project um so it felt like with it was within grasp and you know i think in some of the reviews by the academic historians um they weren't all positive and you know so i got i got reviews like uh you know stole's a better writer than most academic historians but he got this and this and this little fact wrong which i you know um you know fair enough uh um i'll you know i'll take the i'll take the yeah. praise of the writing but it, it the book um the book really sold like that. Mm -hmm. That's the, other, the, that was the other kind of, um, it really outdid my expectations. And I think, um, to some extent corrected that, that, um, fading of Samuel Adams in the popular memory of the historian. Mm -hmm. And I think it really hit with, uh, with a whole religious audience who, mm -hmm. uh, identified with this idea that, the religious aspect of the motivation of the revolutionaries had been unjustly written out of, yeah. of history. 
Yeah, you know, we have William Billings and Jonathan Mayhew, these other kind of precursors to this. And it really is a very important part of the story. And since then, you've written a biography of John F. Kennedy. Do you have in the works any other biographies? Uh, not at the not at the moment. Okay, so if um, I feed you some names, you might uh, become intrigued. Or... People are always <laughs> suggesting, like, oh, you should write a biography of this person or that person. Um, usually, they're either too obscure or they're too famous. Like, if they're too obscure, no one's going to care about them. And if they're too famous, they've already been written about extensively. So I was lucky I got to Samuel Adams precisely when I did because he was right at that uh mm. right at that um mm. perfect uh you know goldilocks uh mm -hmm. <laughs> not too obscure and not too yeah. famous yeah. good and, and we'll leave aside the historians who are consumed with jealousy that you write really well and that your book sells but uh it's iris Stoll, the author of samuel adams a life and i want to thank you for joining us and thank everyone for listening, you know, we started this podcast about a year ago thinking we would reach an audience, you know, in and around New England. And actually we have, but also we have listeners every week I check. And I, so this week, I just want to thank the folks in Alfred, Maine and Alexandria in Egypt and Alpine, California, as well as Innisbrook in Austria. As we have a global audience listening in on the story of the American Revolution on Rev 250, and now we will be piped out on the road to Boston. So thanks, Ira, for joining us. My pleasure.